Would you turn with me to Second uh, Corinthians 11, please? Second Corinthians 11. Uh, back when I was in the military, I was responsible for the Little League program on our post, and uh, one of my uh, one of my functions was periodically to call uh, Little League baseball games, which is why I generally drew hazardous pay, hazardous <laughs> duty pay. Uh, and on one particular occasion, I called a youngster out on a call third strike. I knew him fairly well. His father was a uh, colonel on the commandant's staff, the uh, post-commandant staff, and he was sort of a feisty little kid. And when I called him out, he turned around and questioned my uh, eyesight, and then he questioned my ancestry, <laughs> at which point I uh, thumbed him out of the game whereupon he reminded me who his father was. At which point I reminded him that I really didn't give a rip who his father was. At this uh, particular juncture in life, uh, I was uh, in charge of things on this uh, baseball diamond, and uh, it really didn't matter who his father was, and his father backed me up. I thought of that story uh, when I read through this passage in 2 Corinthians 11, because to some extent that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's simply establishing for these believers in Corinth that he had authority in a particular sphere which no one could supersede. Uh, as you know, there were a group of people, Paul designates them as super-apostles, which is his ironic way of referring to some, some of his detractors, people that had come to Corinth who were questioning his authority, who said that they had a greater authority than the Apostle Paul. And Paul does what he, what he calls uh, indulging in a little foolishness. Here, he, he says, I, I don't really want to do this. I have to talk about myself and the authority that I have in this sphere. It embarrasses me to do it. I feel like a fool, he says. Nevertheless, it's necessary for me to do it because the gospel is at stake. See, Paul was, uh, as we have pointed out, was an apostle with authority equal to that of, of our Lord Jesus. He had the right to speak authoritatively about the gospel and God's way of bringing salvation to men, uh, he had that right, and he had that responsibility. He had to speak out as an apostle of Christ, and that's what he's doing. But he doesn't like to do it. That makes all of us feel awkward at times, having to press our authority upon someone else, but that's what he's doing. Now, if you remember from last week, he established his authority from two facts, two things that were true. He had authority because he was commissioned as an apostle, and because, by the Lord himself, and because the particular course that he was to run, which brought him to Corinth, was given to him by Christ. He had to go to Corinth because he was running in the lane that was assigned to him. Now, in this chapter, he picks up two more facts that he wants us to know about his, uh, about his uh, uh, apostleship. Paul says in verse 1, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Paul says, I'm going to talk foolishness. Will you, will you stick with me? Will you bear with me? And indeed you are bearing with me, he says. I, you are putting up with what he calls foolishness. And then he explains why he employs this particular strategy. For, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, or with the jealousy of God. We could well translate that phrase. I am as jealous for you as God is. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure 
as a chaste, as an unsullied, untouched virgin. And he says, I am afraid, lest as the servant deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Uh, now, Paul is, is doing something here that's very healthy. He's talking about how he feels, and it's hard for some of us. It's uh, always been difficult for me to talk about my feelings, and perhaps it is for you, but that's a very healthy thing to do. And that's precisely what Paul is doing. He said, I feel jealous, and I feel afraid. And we say, no, wait a minute. Neither of those uh, emotions are, are proper. Jealousy is one of the works of the flesh, as Paul designates it in Galatians 5. And fear is something that uh, Jesus constantly enjoined his disciples and us against. Don't, don't be afraid, he said. Fear not. Don't keep fearing. In what sense does Paul then, uh, uh, is he right in feeling jealous and afraid? Well, uh, there is a proper jealousy. He calls it the jealousy of God. God gets jealous. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 34, we're told that his name is jealous. Jealousy is an intolerance of rivalry. And uh, sometimes it's proper and sometimes it's, uh, it's not. If I have a good friend and he takes up with somebody else, it would be improper for me to get jealous because I don't own him. I don't possess him. He's not mine. I have no proprietary interest in that person. He has the right to be a friend to someone else. That's improper jealousy. But uh, if someone tries to seduce my wife away, that's a different thing. That's a horse of a different color. And I ought to be jealous. I ought to be outraged. I ought to do anything I can to put an end to that. Because she doesn't belong to him. She belongs to me. And no one has the right to lay a hand on her. Uh, some of you may remember last year when we were talking about marriage, I told a story about a man who came to me once because he had looked out the front window of his house and he saw a big fellow from down the street with his arms around his wife. He was embracing her and it was more than just uh, a show of affection. He was really clinging to her. And he said, what should I do? And I said, well, I'll tell you what I would do. Now, you may think this is a bit of an overreaction, but at the point, this is the counsel I gave. I said, I'd go out in the backyard and I'd get a two before, about six feet long, and I'd go over to your neighbor's house on this knock and knock on his front door. And when he came out, I would say, if you ever lay a finger on my wife again, I'm going to put a fork knot on your head. And he said, that's not Christian. I said, what do you mean that's not Christian? All you have to do is read the Old Testament to see how enraged God became when the nations around Israel began to touch what he calls the, the uh, apple of my eye. When, when they began to try to seduce Israel away, God was enraged, and he went after them, so to speak, with his two-by-four. That's proper. That's right. You ought to do something like that if someone is trying to woo your wife away from you. That's a godly jealousy. Paul says, that's what I feel for you. Because he says, I'm like a father who has betrothed his daughter to a, 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 a fine young man, and some slut comes along and tries to seduce her away. So that makes me mad. Uh, he, he's thinking of a, of a cultural phenomenon. We don't do that sort of thing today, but in their day, most marriages were contracted by the father. He found the bride for his son, would find a bride for his son. And very often these marriages were contracted while the son was still a child. 
And so the betrothal would last sometimes for years before the marriage was actually formed. And it's that that Paul has in mind. He went to the Corinthians, and as a father, he betrothed them as a bride to Christ, and now he's waiting for Christ's return, at which point they will be married. Now, Paul says, I just want you to be a chaste virgin when he comes back. I don't want you to be seduced away by these uh, false apostles, these super apostles in Corinth, who are trying to deflect you away from a sincere and pure love for Christ. You see what he's saying? And Paul says, when they try to win you away, it makes me mad. I get jealous. It's not right. I have to do something about it, you see. Because I want you to be pure and single-minded and devoted to Christ so that, as John says, when he comes, you will love him. Now, let me say something as an aside. This has really nothing to do with the with the emphasis of the passage, but I want to say this because I, I think it's comforting to people. It certainly is to me. I've often used this passage when people have come to me to talk to me about the ruin they have made of their lives, particularly in sexual matters, and they feel defiled and, and they, they, they operate under a heavy load of guilt. Perhaps they've been involved in an extramarital affair or they're involved in a lot of sexual misadventures before they were married, or there's an abortion in, the, in, the, in their life or something, and they, they feel ruined and, and blighted and, and uh, sullied and spoiled. I always read them this passage. Paul says, I have betrothed you to Christ as a pure virgin. That's the way God sees you. He doesn't see the past. He doesn't see the blight. He doesn't see the ruin, the sin, the sexual... Uh, uh, activities doesn't see that at all he, he sees you as a pure and chaste virgin as a matter of fact back in 1 Corinthians 6 Paul describes the former life of these people and he says you were adulterers and you were fornicators and you were homosexuals and he said but you've been you've been cleansed you're pure he says you're just like a virgin you're starting all over again oh, that's a great word of comfort that's what Paul says to me and it's what he says to you if you're here this morning and, you're, and you feel empty and, and desolated by the sin in your past, he wants you to know that he sees you as a pure and chaste virgin. You have a new beginning. As uh, Jeremiah put it in the book of Lamentations, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Set things right. I love that story in John 8, whether it actually belongs in John or not, I don't, I don't know. It probably, <clears throat> I'm sure it really happened. And some very old uh, and early manuscripts contain that story where this dear woman is dragged out of bed with this man and dumped unceremoniously on the street in front of Jesus. And, and the men that had found her in the very act of adultery stood waiting for Jesus to condemn her. And you remember what he said after he had sent them away? Sent them packing with the simple comment, which of you uh, can cast the first stone? Which of you is sinless in this regard? Uh, perhaps they had not been involved in the act of adultery, but certainly in the thought they had been involved many times. They all, they, they left, left Jesus alone with the woman. And she said, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. He, he treat, treated her sin realistically. He called it sin. That's what it was. But he said, I don't condemn you. And that's the way Jesus looks at us. He sees you and me as pure, chaste virgins. 
waiting for our Lord Jesus. Now that's what that's all Paul wants. He says, I, I'm, I'm jealous of you. The way God is jealous of you. I, I'm waiting for the time that the Lord Jesus comes back and I can present you to him as a pure virgin. And he says, I'm, a, I'm afraid. I, I'm fearful. Lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. Uh, the word simplicity is used here in the same way in which we use the word simple when we refer to a simple uh, compound. We mean unmixed with, with something else. Simple in the sense of single-minded. What, what Paul is looking for, what the Lord is looking for, is a single-minded love and devotion for the Lord Jesus. It's what, Paul, or it's what John calls in the book of Revelation, in the letter to the church in Ephesus. Your first love, your primary love, a love for the Lord Jesus. That was a church that had it all. They had gifted teachers. They had uh, gifted administrators. They had programs. They had persevered. They were orthodox. They had it all straight. But uh, John, Jesus says to that church, you've left your first love. And the first love is the Lord Jesus. Centering upon him is what it's all about. Loving him, devoting yourself to him. And Paul says, I'm afraid that something might divert you from that. For he says, if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, I think that should be capitalized, it should be Holy Spirit that he's referring to because he uses the same terminology in the book of Galatians when he, he says, did you receive the spirit through the works of law or, or through grace? So I, I think it's the Holy Spirit. A different Holy Spirit which you have not received from me as an apostle. Or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You bear this beautifully. This is in contrast with verse 1. He's saying, bear with me in a little foolishness because you've borne with these men when they come and, and, and teach, uh, teach error about Jesus. I think he uses Jesus because he's emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. He's talking about the incarnation. You see, we apostles, he said, we, we know that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, fully human and yet fully divine. That's the way the apostles taught him. Anything else is a different gospel. If someone comes and, and says Jesus was not fully human, or if they say Jesus was not fully divine, then they, they, they don't have an apostolic message. That's another gospel. Or he says if they come and, and teach you an, about another spirit, that is another indwelling spirit, another way of of cultivating and nurturing your, your uh, relationship to God other than by counting upon the indwelling presence of Christ, then that's a different spirit that you're being taught. Or if someone comes and teaches you another gospel that it's by, by law and self-effort, it's by, uh, by gussying yourself up, it's by a little more spit and polish that you make yourself approved to God. Don't listen. Don't listen because we apostles told you that it was, it was a gift that God sent his son to die. It's a gift. It's an offering. All you have to do is take it and receive it. And if anybody teaches you anything else, he says, other than the gospel which we apostles preach, it's not gospel. It's not good news. Don't believe it. Because what they're doing is diverting, diverting you away from, a, from the simplicity of a single-minded love for Christ. That's always the mark. You see, the, the, the apostles and those who take the apostles seriously want to center us on Christ, make us love him more, 
make us want to serve him more. That's always the mark of apostolic teaching and preaching. And if it doesn't, it's a diversion. It's an intrusion. It's, an, it's a demonic intrusion to, uh, to turn us aside. And it, it can be a theological thing. You know, it can be a, a misrepresentation of apostolic teaching so that the theology is improper. Or it can be just a, a focus on the wrong things. It can be a focus upon the programs of a church or building a building or a focus upon a beautiful choral music or great congregational singing or acquiring an organ or it can be a focus upon some, some good, uh, uh, something that we do for, for the economy or for the, for the environment, saving the wilderness, saving the whales, whatever. It, it, there are all sorts of things that are, that are good and proper causes, but what they do is just slightly divert us from the main thing. As Joe Aldrich puts it, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is to know our Lord Jesus and love him and serve him. I uh, get a big kick out of Os Guinness in his writings. And he has just uh, written a book called The Grave Digger Conspiracy, which is a very clever book. It's a, a C.S. Lewis Screwtape Letters approach. It's a conversation or communication between the demons. And, of course, everything is backwards, so you have to read it that way. But he, uh, he records a conversation between two demons, one of whom says to the other, When dieting became fashionable, for example, he's talking about dieting in our culture, when slim became the end thing, propaganda and disinformation were ready with a line of counterfeit slogans. Propaganda and disinformation is the demonic R&D group. They, they are always devising lies to introduce into, into our culture. But they were redundant. That is, the counterfeit slogans they were developing. They were redundant even before they were released. The Christian ones were far better. Dieting Christian style became trim for him. Then with the stress shifting to fitness, there came aerobic praise, devotion in motion, <laughs> praiser size, and the most astounding so far, the album Firm Believer. <laughs> and the slimming slogan, he must increase, but I must decrease. <laughs> Firm Believer says it all. With spiritual narcissism so well advanced, firm believer is a matter of aerobics rather than apologetics, of human fitness rather than divine faithfulness, shapeliness is now next to godliness, and training righteous character has given way to trimming the right curves. Poor old Paul, wrong again. Bodily exercise now profits much, for the record companies at least. Poor old John the Baptist, decreasing for him meant losing his head not shedding a few pounds. Now, the reason I read that is because he is right on target. This preoccupation with uh, fitness and being slim, there's nothing wrong with that, but it becomes the end in itself. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you want to know what, what your mind is preoccupied with, what my mind is preoccupied with? There's a very simple test. Jesus put it this way. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Now, in Greek, heart is mind. It's a rational uh, part of man. 
When Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your mind will be, what he means is this. Whenever you're not thinking about something else, what does your mind go to? That's what your treasure is. That's what you ultimately value. It's a good exercise every once in a while when you shift, when your mind is shifted into neutral to think about what you think about. What is your mind center on? I see it, the, the tip-off is, is our value system. What do we value? What do we treasure? What has ultimate worth to us? That's what our mind gravitates toward. What Paul is saying to us and to these these folks in Corinth is you know, there are theological problems that come along and you have to wrestle with those because they divert your attention. But quite frankly, those are not the things that distress us too much because most of us can screen those things out. We have enough knowledge of Scripture that we can prevent heresy from diverting us from, from a preoccupation with Christ. It's the little things that divert our attention. It's the time that we give to getting the country look in our homes or to some kind of stitchery or small thing that we're doing to put on the wall, or tying a new fly pattern, or inventing a fly pattern, or, or thinking about some hunting trip or fishing trip that we're going to take, or a vehicle that we're going to buy, or clothes that we need to purchase, or the fact that we need to shed a few pounds, and it just goes on and on and on. Those are the things we're preoccupied with. As Henry Nouwen put it, it's not your occupation that renders you ineffective. It's your preoccupation. So what is it that we're focused upon? What are we centering on? What are we thinking about? What do we invest with ultimate value and worth? Paul says, I hope it's the Lord Jesus. If it's not, then Satan has got you off center. He's diverted your attention. I'm afraid, Paul says, that might happen. And he goes on in verse 5, continuing his use of irony, I consider myself not in the least inferior to these most eminent apostles these super apostles, he says. But if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. The word that he uses for unskilled is a word that was used in that day for amateur, uh, for an amateur status. Someone who's unschooled, unlettered, untrained in the rhetoric. Paul says, I'm not a polished speaker. I'm not an orator. I, you know, I sometimes stumble over words and I say, uh, a lot. I'm not a polished orator, Paul says. But I've got the content down. That's what he means by knowledge. I, I have a revelation from God that tells me about the Lord Jesus Christ and how to know him and how to please him, how to set things right with God. That's, that's the knowledge that's been given to me. And Paul says that's really the mark of, my, uh, of the effectiveness of my ministry. It's not how I say it, it's what I say. I, I often point out to our interns and to other young uh, uh, pastors that there is a modicum, there's a measure of, of uh, good to be found in homiletics and presentation, how you say what you say. All of us need to learn to be more skilled communicators. But the real issue is not how you say what you say, but what you say. It's your content. Say. It's the content of your message. I listen to some of these uh, dear uh, TV evangelists on, on the tube and have these lavish sets and $400 suits and Rolex uh, wristwatches and beautiful music and they interview celebrities and it's, it's impressive. But my question is always, where's the beef? Where's the meat? Where's the content? They say it beautifully, but, but what have they said when it's all said and done? I'm not indicting them all, but, but we do need to be discerning. 
What we look for is not how something is done, but what is said. What's the content? And Paul says, I, I have knowledge. uses a special word that refers to a unique and special revelation. I have the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, and I, I want you to know him and fellowship with him and enjoy daily friendship with him and worship him and adore him, center on him. It's all that matters. Nothing else matters when everything is said and done. And I'm afraid, he said, lest someone come along and, and steal you away, seduce you away from that purity and single-minded devotion to Christ. Now that's uh, what I would say is the third mark of authenticity. His commission from the Lord Jesus, the course that he was to run, which he faithfully ran. And then third, the, the, the content of his message, which directed uh, the people in Corinth to focus their gaze upon Christ. Now, he has another, uh, there is another mark here, verses 7 through 12. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. Uh, interesting metaphor here. It doesn't turn up in our translation, but he uses a word that means to loot and pillage. It's, it's translated robbed here. Just thinking of a military campaign. It was customary in those days, whenever a city was conquered, to loot the city, and then they used the, uh, the uh, wealth from that city to finance the next campaign. And that's the analogy that Paul is making here. I pillaged the churches in Macedonia in order to... to uh, uh, to come down here to continue my campaign. And we know from what we've already learned in Second Corinthians, these churches in Macedonia were very, very poor, poverty-stricken people. And yet Paul says he had accepted gifts from them for his support while he was in Corinth. While I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Paul refused to be supported by the church in Corinth. He didn't take up a collection. He, wouldn't, he didn't want their money. He didn't ask them to support him. Not because he believed that it was wrong for him to be supported. He argued strongly in another place in 1 Corinthians 9 that he had the right to be supported by his ministry. But he had foregone that right because he wanted to offer the gospel to them free of charge. As a matter of fact, he says in another place, not only did he receive gifts from the churches in Macedonia, he worked with his hands so he wouldn't be a burden. He's a leather worker. We're used to thinking of, of Paul as a sailmaker, which is probably a little more dignified or a tent maker, but really the, the word just means he was a leather worker. He made, he made sails, he made tents, because they were made out of leather in those days. He made uh, cloaks that were made out of leather. But it was a very menial task. Paul probably never learned a trade. He was a scholar all of his life. He'd been in school. And uh, he'd never learned to craft, didn't know what to do with his hands. And when he got down to Corinth and other places, because he did not want to be a burden, he just he went to the local shoe store and offered to cobble shoes, you see. Just a, a menial task so he could make the gospel available to them free of charge. Now, why did he do this? He says, well, I did it to cut the feet out from under those who would, who would say that they're just like we are. That's my paraphrase of, Verse 11 and 12. Why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing I will continue to do that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are, that is, as apostles in the matter about which they are boasting. Now this is what I think happened 
these apostles came over to Corinth and they said, uh, how much uh, How much did, did Paul charge you for his ministry here? They said, nothing. And they said, see, that's exactly what he's worth. He's worth precisely what he charges. If he were any good at all, if he were a philosopher, if he were trained as a rhetorician, uh, then he would, he would charge for his services. All of us do, they were saying. And Paul says, what, what I would like to do is establish the motives of these people. He says, let me ask you Corinthians a question. This is all, I think, underlying verses 11 and 12. Would these people serve if there was no reward? Would they give themselves selflessly as I have if they weren't paid for it? Don't you see, he said, I'm not a peddler of the gospel. I didn't come in order to enrich myself. I didn't come expecting pay or emotional support or good feedback. I just came to serve. That's all. If you want to find out the motives of these other fellows, ask yourself the question, would they serve if their paycheck was taken away? Earlier he calls them peddlers of the gospel because that's precisely what they were doing. They were selling the gospel in order to enrich themselves. I got a phone call the other day at 6.30 in the morning. I was up, just barely. And I was a little bit annoyed that anyone would call me at 6.30 in the morning. And despite all that I said the other day about being kind to people who sell you things on the phone, I uh, almost lost it. I picked up the phone, and this bright, cheery voice said, Guess what kind of a deal I've got for you? I said, Friend, do you know what time it is? I said, It's 6.30 in the morning. And I said, In the first place, I don't buy things over the phone. In the second place, I wouldn't buy anything from anybody who called me at 6.30 in the morning. There's silence on the phone, then he comes back and he says, well, he says, here in California, it's even earlier. <laughs> <laughs> the sun is shining, the birds are singing, he goes on and on and on, and I said, thank you very much, but I really am not interested. And he hung up, he just hung up. See, he was a peddler. The, the, the minute he realized that I wasn't going to reward him by buying his product, then he turned off. He was not interested in serving me or being at all cheerful. or you know, He didn't care about me. He, he just wanted to make some money out of me. Now, see, that's what Paul is saying. You take away a person's reward, will they continue to serve? Will they continue to care? That's a good question to ask all of us, to ask ourselves. You know, what, it's one thing to serve when you're up front and you're recognized and approved and accepted and you get a lot of positive feedback. It's another thing to serve out there in the body and no one sees what you're doing. That's the real test of our motivation. Will we serve when no one sees? And that for me is the second of Paul's two marks of authenticity in this chapter. What, what we need to do is help people through the word to focus their lives upon Jesus Christ and we need to do so quietly, persistently, Patiently, even if no one sees or hears or knows or cares, even if you don't make a dime out of what you're doing, either in terms of actual financial benefit or any kind of reward, any, any other sort of reward that you get. That's a mark of the real thing. When you see people serving quietly like that, you know they are authentic. They have the real thing. Now, I... I believe what Paul is saying is that that's where Satan uh, tries to get us. He diverts our attention away from Christ and onto ourselves. 
That's why he goes on to say, for such men, that is those that he refers to who want to be just like the Apostle Paul in verse 12, those uh, whose opportunity he would like to cut off, such men, he says, are false apostles. They're bogus. They're, they're not the real thing. Deceitful workers, workers of deceit. Uh, the word that he uses for deceitful here is a word that literally means to do anything, to work anywhere. It means to do anything for a buck. They, they will tell you anything in order to extract money from you. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and Paul says we shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us, because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Behind these, a false apostle, apostle Paul says, is a malignant, malevolent personality who's out to destroy, to maim, to ruin, to murder. Jesus said he is a liar and a murderer. His strategy is to deceive. His ultimate end is to destroy. And he lies behind these false merchants, these false apostles. And is it any wonder, he says, that they look like the real thing, because so does he. He looks like an angel of light. If Satan were to appear at your front door, he would not show up in red underwear with a trident and say, I have come here to ruin your life. I'm going to wreck your marriage. I'm going to destroy your health. I'm going to divert your attention away from Christ. You would recognize him immediately for who he is, and you would turn your back on him, hopefully. But he doesn't show up like that. Shows up in a university uh, classroom as a kind, benevolent, gentle, wise, caring person who just slightly deflects you away from Christ and a willingness to serve him unselfishly. Paul says we need to watch out. We need to be afraid. We need to be jealous for those that we're working with that they'll stay pure in their devotion to Christ. We need to be afraid for them when we see them begin to begin to divert away, divert their attention away from him. We need to do something about it. We need to move in and help. And we need to watch out for our own souls, take heed to ourselves, as Paul says to Timothy. And that's really the question. Really very simple. There are two things that ought to mark us out if we're authentic. One is a single-minded devotion to Christ, and secondly is a willingness to serve him unselfishly wherever we are. That's what marks us as having the real thing. I uh, got a letter just this past week from a friend of mine, Don Burgess. I, I have lost the letter. I was just sick when I lost it because I wanted to read an excerpt from it. But uh, Don is uh, a missionary to the Taramara Indians in Chihuahua, Mexico. Uh, you may have heard of the Taramaras years ago when the Olympics was in Mexico City. I've forgotten the date. But the Taramara Indians are these people that uh, kick this little leather ball uh, for, they run and kick it with their bare feet for days and days and days. They literally run for hundreds of miles. They tried to draft them for the Olympics to run the marathon, and when they made the 26 miles, they were just getting warmed up. So they never really made it as long-distance runners. They are just incredible people. And Don has for about 15, I guess 18 years now, been a missionary along with Maria, his wife, in, uh, in uh, Chihuahua, Mexico, in that province. He uh, wrote to tell us about an experience that he had Christmas Eve 
you wouldn't know it was Christmas Eve until you got to the end of the letter because he didn't make a big thing out of it. But uh, he was, he's been working, he's a Wycliffe translator, he's been working on a translation of, tar, of the Taramara language into, into uh, or of the New Testament into Taramara. Uh, he and Marie made it as far as El Paso, they flew to El Paso from uh, mission headquarters in Southern California, then they took a bus into the interior, and then they started walking. It was 50 miles from the end of the bus line into where their village was, and they just started walking, hoping that they would catch a ride on a truck or something going in that direction. They walked all that day. Finally, a truck came by, but it was going to the wrong town, so they got on the truck, and it took them to the town of El Muerto, just a little hole-in-the-wall sawmill somewhere in, in, in the interior of Mexico. And they got there, and, and Maria patched up a little boy that had been hurt, and, and Don went from door to door, sharing the gospel with the Indians in that, in that little sawmill town. And uh, nightfall came, it was Christmas Eve, and they were away from their family and their children, stuck in this little sawmill town. They were trying to get back to their, to their village. I've forgotten the name of their village now, in order to be with their, with their family. And they couldn't get back. They couldn't get a ride. And so they, they found a little place to stay in the back of somebody else's apartment, put some straw on the ground, and they bedded down for the night. And Don's only comment was, we had it a lot better than Mary and Joseph did. The next morning they got up and uh, they had to, had to catch a, a truck all the way back into the town from which they originally left because they couldn't get a ride. And they waited around all day and waited and waited and waited. And finally that night another truck came along. There were uh, two men that were going up to their village to tell the people up there about two Indians that had been killed in a propane explosion. And they got on the truck and they went up there on the way they discovered that one of the Indians that was killed was one of, one of uh, Don's translators, one of his helpers. And now he didn't have a translator. So he, he left his little village on Christmas Day and they went up into the hills and he found a little boy who knew enough English that he'd help him translate. And they worked on 2nd and 3rd John all of Christmas Day until they completed a translation of those two books. And that letter was full of praise for what they had accomplished in Christ's name. And I could not think, uh, could not but relate that letter to what we were talking about today. Because uh, here's a couple who are unsung, unheard of. Uh, none of you have ever heard of Don Burgess, I'm sure. But he's just quietly laboring away in, in, in Mexico, in the interior of Mexico, with a tribe of Indians that no one else is concerned, a bit, uh, concerned about right now. Translating the New Testament into their language so they can know the Lord, so they can focus on Him and love Him. That's His goal, and He's going, he's going about it in a selfless way. And the question I have to ask you and I have to ask me, is that our heart? Is that where we are this morning? That's where God wants us to be. Let's pray.
on Calvary, dying for our sins, loving and forgiving. Easter morning, risen from the dead, he will live forever. Now he is our Savior, and his name is Jesus. 